Thank you for listening to this artist talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, Sue Kneebone reveals the interconnection of her works on display in Gallery 10. Welcome, everyone. Firstly, I will say Mani Naputni. So from Ghana to English, so I'm glad you could all be here. I do want to begin by firstly acknowledging that we are meeting today on the land of the Ghana people. And I think it's particularly important in this context that we take this opportunity to recognise the continuation of Ghana cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land, and to pay our respects to elders past and present. So it is a delight to be here in the gallery with Sue Kneebone and to introduce you to her work and to this display of her work here at the gallery. I've had the great pleasure of working with Sue over the last kind of six months or so now on putting together this display and thinking about the selection of works and also the context in which they would be displayed. Um, so the works are mostly drawn from the gallery's permanent collection with only two works on loan from private collections. Um, so as an Adelaide-based artist with a studio at Fontenelle and as an educator at the Central School of Art, I'm sure many of you in this room know Sue, but I will introduce her nevertheless. So she is someone who I would describe as driven by her curiosity. So a curiosity to discover the past and to perhaps consider how the past informs the present. Um, and it is her research of the depths of her cultural heritage that really seemed to underpin her, your work. Um, and so your journey has taken you on many field trips, much research um, locally, but also internationally. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, Sue, but you've traveled as far as England, Scotland, Los Angeles, New York. Uh, next month, you'll be traveling again to Ireland for the second time. Um, so really following the paths of your ancestors and considering, yeah, your identity and your place, I guess, within the world um, at large. So Sue has a Bachelor of Arts and a Master of Fine Arts from the Victoria College of the Arts, but most recently she was awarded a Doctor of Philosophy from the University of South Australia in 2010. And it is this body of research that really began... Um, yeah, your pursuit of your own identity and that research has really informed a number of works in this display. So I'll take it, I'll leave it to Sue to kind of start us off with that research um, and to talk about a little bit about um, how that research into the Gawler Ranges have informed the objects that now surround us. Okay, um, probably we'll talk to the works because that um, will unfold the stories and the people. Um, so there is like a chain of stories that happen through um, my historical genealogical research. Um, I'll probably start with um, my PhD involved the Gawler Ranges history and um, all I had to start with was um, a handful of photos left over from my grandmother um, I'd been living in Melbourne for 20 years, so I really, at that time in my 20s, had no sort of interest in family history. It wasn't until I came back to do my PhD that I was able to delve a bit deeper. I was very interested in environmental issues um, and the implications of colonial settler history and what that meant to my own identity. Um, so 
all I had to start with was um, this little handful of photos left by my grandmother. At the time, had Alzheimer's disease, but she was from that very kind of repressed, sort of Victorian, sort of Protestant. Um, no stories were left behind. So I had to really fill in the gaps through archival history and, and that sort of research. And then the works I made are, I guess, fill in the gaps. It sort of could be like speculations, which um, really led to the idea of colonial settler heritage and how unsettling that is and how out of place um, I perhaps am in implicating my own history. Um, so I've done this sort of twist. It's, it's got this sort of gothic sensibility because gothic sort of, um, it turns things on its head. So it's actually sort of looks at the other, but you're looking at yourself as the other. So it's trying to create this sort of wonderment about yourself. So I want to get that effect and feeling of the past, which we no longer have, but I want to bring it in. And all those sort of anecdotes and stories I read through the historical archives, I want to re relive, represent that 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 feeling. And all of those stories have been lost. Um, they become bygone memories down through the generations. Stories aren't, especially in our culture, aren't handed down. Um, but we are now very much a visual culture, so maybe that's a way we can retell these stories and re-imbibe that sense and feeling. Um, so these photos, um, they've mo montaged with animals and skeletons and things I've created or taken photographs in the flesh. Um, these are my great-grandparents on the left. That's Arthur and Mabel Bailey, my great-grandparents. They managed Yardi um, in the late um, 1800s to early 1900s up in the Gawler Ranges. So these are some of the original photos I had, my grandmother had, um, which I started to explore the histories behind. So part of my work to understand this authentic sort of history, to make it authentic, is to go up and do field work. So I took myself up to Yardi in the Gawler Ranges. It's one of those places people think of and say, well, I'd like to get there sometime, but don't often. So this was an opportunity. My first opportunity was on a biodiversity trip. Um, so I, I thought, well, I was into the environmental issues originally, and I wanted to see how we'd ma um, managed or mismanaged um, through pastoralism our land. And also that led to the idea of what happened through the disaffection and dispossession of Aboriginal people. So one thing led to another, and the deeper I went, the darker it got. Um, so going on this biodiversity trip, um, there were a lot of scientists collecting animals, and this whole paradox of, like for the South Australian Museum, so the whole paradox of collecting animals to conserve them, to kill them, to conserve them. So they're sort of these little endangered microbats. Um, I took photos of them in the, in the science tent. They were that tiny, so I took close-ups of the heads. I've transplanted them on my um, great-grandfather and his um, brother-in-law and, um, um, and Mr Mosley of um, that heritage. Probably all, so it's quite well-known Adelaide people. Um, so those bats have been transplant transplanted. The Gawler Ranges National Park was once part of Yardi property at the time my great-grandfather managed it. So I also look at that sort of paradox of what belongs, what doesn't. So now that animals that were once... Um, part of the pastoral, like sheep and that, now don't belong in the National Park. So that goat gun, which is um, up in the middle here, um, was the first, the first sort of start of this idea of where am I going to take these as artefacts to translate this into art. Um, 
on this expedition, there was a feral control officer who'd been living there for years. It was like a third-generation um, hunter in the area. He was uh, lived in a little town locally um, out near the Gawler Ranges. Um, he walked around in his camouflage gear, his gun. He was pretty proud. He knew the lands. He took us down valleys and deeps. He knew where all the animals were. And he was standing with his gun and said, just a minute, and he walked over the hill and then bang, oh, oops, there was a sheep that had escaped the idea into the national park. So what once um, belonged in the national, what was once a pastoral station, now it didn't belong, so I thought this is confusing. Um, and at his feet there were bones, and this little old feral goat bones, and I thought, ah, oh, and I saw the gun, I saw the bones, and I just thought they looked like the, the shaft of the gun, and I, so I thought, this is a lovely kind of idea to, um, so I asked if he could show me where bones were and other things, so I, I got permission to collect them and translate them into these guns. So behind you is a mix of um, native and um, um, introduced animals, cow, sheep, kangaroo. So that's whole whole mixture and that whole conflation and confusion of, of, of the fence, boundary of the fences. In the National Park, um, I don't have other have people been there up to the Gawler Ranges? Yeah, yeah. So you understand that it's partly still a pastoral history within the National Park, so they've retained that. And through there is the dingo fence, which my great-grandfather established and built when he was there. So that whole thing of fencing in and fencing out. Um, part of um, also in my grandmother's collection was a little book. Like they were, they were schooled up there too by this um, English guy called Thomas Davenport Picton Warlow, which I think is a very eccentric English name. And he did some drawings in a little sketchbook. And one was of a, of a dingo um, in a, and um, another one was the little emu um, wrens and things like that that once belonged to the area and became problematic. Um, and what was I going to lead on to? Um, so my, my grandparents, my grandmother was actually, and her sister was schooled up there, and their brother. Um, my grandma was the only one remaining from the two the siblings, so that's why the photos were handed down. Um, so, where else we go? <laughs> I'm inclined to just let you continue. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting lost. <laughs> web of connections between yeah. each yeah. work. Um, but I do find it fascinating, to Sue, to think about all this research that you've done, uncovering all these kind of hidden stories of the frontier past. Mm. Um, along the way, you're talking with people, you're engaging communities about the significance of objects, mm -hmm. and then you're putting this all down on paper and you're creating art. So the idea of these very personal stories becoming public, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that process. How does this story then materialise itself into objects? Mm, that's a bit of a... Is that a difficult one? Yes, Should it is. We? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's because, you know, the more we talk, the more I'm like, oh, that work's connected to this work and it's connected by stories, but it's connected by materials. So, you know, you mentioned the gun in... Um, the photograph, for better or for worse, and then that gun is also in the work behind us. And the head of your great-grandfather in that photograph of the ram's skull is also found in the oven pot, um, which is on the back wall. Um, so you find these things, and then they're presented to us. I guess it's a, the stories are circulating within and around each other, so there's stories within stories, and yeah. to, to sort of create links between the objects and the stories, because the works are, like the relations are interrelated, so almost the works become interrelated, yeah. so... Um, yeah. yeah, which I think is fascinating. I think yeah. it's, you're discovering the past, but in the process you're reimagining an entirely, you know, or you're creating an entirely new narrative. 
um, where you're kind of, it's kind of an, another story on top of the stories that exist, if you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, it, it's because there's so many gaps, it's more of an, a feeling or effect um, for that past. And um, I guess I want to get that across, that sort of the, the, the oppressed silence and how you can um, revive that. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so it becomes something, you know, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, you started thinking about your personal history and then you realise that this is the perfect time um, for us all to be considering our kind mm. of collective history. It's a bit of a zeitgeist, really, at the time, because um, this goes back a fair way. Um, I guess around when I was doing my honours in the 1990s, we were just made to read... Re read revisionist histories of Australia, and that's like uh, Henry Reynolds um, and um, th those ideas of the suppressed histories and memories um, of dispossession, what we've done. And I was thinking, I don't have much history. I don't know my own history. I've sort of been here for generations. My family actually in Adelaide came on the Africaine, which is the first settlers to actually land on shore here. So I didn't realise that until I did my PhD. That's how, you know, implicated my own ignorance um, I don't know if it's something we sort of do later in life, but um, I, so there's a whole richness there. Um, I, I lived in Melbourne for 20 years. I didn't have those connections, so I was just sort of doing general sort of statements about the environment, what we've done. But to come back here and find somewhere I can dig deeper and sustain the interest and actually dig a lot deeper and implicate my own sense and feeling and change through that and understand that at a deeper level, not only... Um, implicate myself but have a broader ramifications and understanding of raising those overlooked histories and little known histories which bear meaning on all of us and I'm not surprised I wouldn't be surprised if I'm related to half of you know <laughs> we're all you know the people who've been here for some generations I just the the, the interlinks and that are quite um mm. profound you mm. know what mm. I found um yeah so yeah um, well should we talk a little bit about the gentleman that greets us when we walk uh, into yeah. this space. He's, this, um, yeah. You go on. Um, this is called Unnatural Causes. Um, it's one of those sort of side histories that crop up and they're sort of tenuous links. But um, have you heard of the Yellowstone Massacre down at Air Peninsula? There's, I was looking back in the Gawler Ranges and Air Peninsula history. Air Peninsula, of course, was settled before the Gawler Ranges. And that whole pastoral history goes, starts off in the Air Peninsula area. Um, I was sort of interested in that, what happened to Indigenous people in dispossession and the um, alleged um, Waterloo Bay massacre was, um, how many people know about that here, where um, through a chain of events um, leading up to um, Aboriginal people being, um, I guess, driven over the cliff to their deaths um, at Elliston. So Aboriginal people won't go there um, now. It's got this dark history um, and within the area of um, also Streaky Bay um, and that's that general area. It's a sort of a stark sort of history there. Um, I tried to look back um, through the anecdotes and history and chain of events leading up to that and um, how Foster um, and Amanda Nettlebeck, who's scholars in Australian history at Adelaide University, wrote a book called Fatal um, collisions and one of the things he unpacked was the chain of events and histories leading to this um, this massacre. And one was um, a shepherd um, and his sons um, were in a hut and um, as a former, I think it was retribution for something, his, um, the father's head had been cut off and found in the pot by the sons, which led to 
you know, chain of events that eventually one, you know, isolated cases of people being killed in huts and things. And um, so that, that sort of chain of events of retribution led to the Waterloo Bay massacre eventually. So that was always the, the starting point, mm. yeah. Mm. And um, there, there was also tenuous links to the Gawler Rangers and people who ran Yardi. Um, um, there was another woman that was killed and her son was... Um, orphan son was um, brought up by another pastoral uh, manager of Yardi Station in earlier days. So I was just fascinated by this chain, not only directly related to my family, but how it extends beyond and what you can find. Yeah. yeah. So. And so within that work is really a combination of recorded history, but also, also myth and memory. Yeah. Um, and we've kind of spoken before about those different elements and, you know, whether they're contradictory in their narratives or whether they're um, so intimately connected that they overlap. But this idea of myth, memory and history um, is embedded within all of your work. Mm. Um, and you're constantly looking at, you know, archival material. Mm. A lot of what you've just said has been written in newspaper reports. Um, I don't know, I was looking up on Trove last night about the Waterloo Bay Massacre and I saw some very interesting 1920s, 1930s articles um, kind of speculating still about whether or not it, it really happened. Mm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that idea of memory and myth mm. in your work? Yeah, they've only just put up, a, I think, a memorial to that massacre to actually acknowledge it, but it's... it's um, what. That, that's what I'm trying to do, trying to almost raise the spectre from the dead to, to things before they're forgotten, make us... I think it's probably time now, um, through that whole um, The Great Australian Silence, um, to start recognising and resurfacing um, those stories and we're probably prepared, ready, ready to face those. Um, and it's very much about our own sense of history and heritage um, being, you know, fairly new, as we call it, in a colonial sense um, and that ramification in history of... Um, and I'm prepared, you know, I've implicated myself and understood this um, in a search. Um, you know, doing my own family history, I, of course, I'm just sort of doing it in my own sense. I'm put it out there. I have no idea how it's going to be received or, or, or what. So, it, I'm tr yeah, um, but maybe it has hit a chord, yeah, so... Yeah. Or reach beyond, um, yeah. So that... that sort of, it is like a confabulation of that. Mm. You've got the grounded archives in history which give you the, um, you know, so-called so what's, what's, what's chosen to be remembered and what hasn't, but the newspaper archives, especially the language of 19th century, it's, it's quite that, that gothic sort of literature, that, that sort of exaggeration of things which, which underpin this. It's, it's, mm. um, Maybe that's a good point. Language is really seems very important in mm. your work and... You know, you are a talented writer yourself and, you know, these stories could exist really quite um, powerfully in just your writing, but you do also make, you know, incredible objects. But language seems important and maybe that's a chance to speak about the work Angel Inn um, because the title of that work, of course, refers to the pub where your great, great, great grandmother right, Mary yeah. Bailey worked to support yeah. her children. Yeah. So this is Arthur's thing. So I'm talking about yeah the the work with yeah. the uh, drink cabinet yeah. and uh, the horse uh, plant. Yeah. So this is where this I didn't make this work to quite a while after, and it wasn't until we were just talking. I was oh my god, that's that's Arthur's um, grandmother. <laughs> mm 
<laughs> but it, you know, I don't think about Adelaide. It has this sort of whole kind of strange <laughs> underbelly. Yeah. And, and obviously, in Melbourne, say, so why do you want to go out to Adelaide? I say, well, it's, hmm, it's sort of rich with stories. So um, I guess that sort of helps also, that sensibility. Um, but Angel Inn, that's um, Mary Bailey was running pubs. I've sort of become interested in pub history. So this, this sort of body works came together at another show at Fontenelle when I was looking at another branch of the family history around 1850. Um, so actually prior to this, this history. Um, so I even went back further in time. Um, so Mary Bailey, they all ran pubs from the time they ran. I didn't realise like pubs meaning public houses, how important they were in colonial history. Um, Mary Bailey's husband died in 1854. He died in one pub and was buried in another. So he died, he was buried, no, funeral, sorry, funeral at the Admiral Arms in Hyney Street. So, so I was just fascinated. They also used as um, sites for inquests. So if there's bodies found nearby, the local pub was where you take the body and, and they're all put in the stable at the back. So Mary Bailey, um, she had to, so she lost her husband in her 40s. She had to, still had, seven children, so she kept working pubs till she was 75 on her own. Um, and the director's in on Goodger Street, that was, that's, that was called Angel Inn, there's Bailey Lane next to it. So yeah, that's, that's where they had for most, she ended up there um, for the last um, part of her life. Um, now interconnected to these stories, I've just, I've just, because of stories and shops and things that they own down Hiney Street, I started to realise how one met the other and how the children met each other. Um, there was, um, one was a stable hand at a pub and he would have married the daughter of one of daughters, Mary's Bailey. Um, and it was his, um, father I, um, read had been murdered. Um, he was a bit of an outcast, though this is Thomas Mansforth with his son. John Mansforth was his father. Thomas married one of my ancestors. So he, Thomas had died on the Admella and, um, I thought, okay. So I looked him up. His father had, was a murder case. He'd been sort of outcast from his family for being an alcoholic, so here we go, pubs again. Um, and he was living in a hut with a... He was a shepherd and he was living in with a hut with a um, guy that had been pardoned from... Um, as a convict from Van Diemen's Land who was a murderer. So these two Rathfuss Guts guys were living in this pub up on... Um, um, near Port Henry Arms Hotel. So this is Skilligalee Creek, or that area. Um, so I went on another field trip up there um, to kind of do my own, I guess, my own coronial <laughs> family inquest. And I looked up online to see what information was in the Clare Brewery site. There's a young couple that owned that, and he'd gone into the whole kind of history of that. And so I rang him and said, look, I'd like to learn more about this history. He said, come up. He took me to the property. He showed me where the Port Henry Arms was, where these two chaps had fought before they went off and one murdered the other. They had a fight in the pub. The Port Henry Arms is no longer there, but it's where all the bullockies and, and miners and people met in the 1850s and were drinking um, along the... You know, the, it's, it's from... Um, what's the town near um, the Clare Valley? Um, oh, a little nervous. Um, Auburn, that's right, yeah, down to the Port Wagfield, so where they took the copper, yeah, from there in the wool and that, in and out the port there. So it was along that trail, of course it was just a boggy trail at the time, so... These two chaps met at this pub. I went up and took a photo. That's actually of Skilligalee Creek when I got onto the property, which I've montaged. Um, the fox hunt is... It, it, it's just, a, I guess, a play in that idea of them searching for the John Mansfield's body. Um, 
there's a little skeleton encoded down the tree there, which is of a dead sheep, but that's the stand-in, say, for the body, which was, by the time they found it, emaciated, eaten by his dogs. He'd been bludgeoned by a rock and sticks by the killer. Um, James Yates had run off to Adelaide covered in blood. They eventually caught up with him, um, and he was hung at the Adelaide jail. Um, so that's how there's so much transcript about it. Um, Kudnato, who was the first Aboriginal woman to marry a white um, farmer, um, she's the one that found the body. She also had... Uh, the, the murderer went to a hut to sleep the night before he ran away, and so she had to go um, to court in Adelaide to give evidence as a witness. Um, so that, that's why these transcripts uh, are now recorded and someone had put them online. Um, so I was able to get quite a bit of research. I am this rock here... Um, is actually from the Port Henry Arms site, the current land. You let me take it because I said I like to take um, authentic bits. <laughs> so, um, and given that he was murdered by a stone, I thought that fits quite well. There's a bottle under there because they had sort of a drink. Oh, that's right. There was a drink called a snake bite they had. So before the murder, um, just to provoke James Yates, um, topped in John's drink um, some whiskey in his beer, and that's called a snake bite apparently. And he was pissed off. So <laughs> eventually, I think I, I imagine they were sulking and one walking off, and then the other walked off, and then something happened on the way home to their hut. Um, so I went on this field trip up there, and, and I, I, I just drove up through Malala and Balaclava and turned right, and I can't believe there's these strange Gothic these plaques to sites called Devil's Garden, Hellfire Creek, um, and every time you go, oh my God, there's such a Gothic sort of history, someone's put these plaques there belonging to this history. So it just mm. really, mm. the threads, so I just thought, I've got to fill in the gaps, I've got to bring this, this story, it's line, it's just out there on our yeah, back step. So, um, so I've gone from like the 1900s back, d digging back even further, um, yeah, to eight, that's 50 years before this, yeah. this yeah, yeah, just at the beginning of um, that history, colonial history, yeah. I wonder, I read recently, we probably should be, I'm sure we're at almost the end now, but I read recently that you said in terms of your uh, expression of these stories and your use of materials that you're wanting to evoke a sense of colonial brutality rubbing up against gentrification. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder in kind of closing the talk today, if you could speak about, yeah, that collision of materials and forms and within that, our decision together to present your work in a setting which we've tried to evoke, a kind of 19th century parlour room or even the feeling of a pub um, mm. with the use of wallpaper and mm. the mm. kind of dado treatments. Mm. I, yeah, this is where I feel like the past is in the present, that whole kind of facade of polite society in Adelaide having this strange underbelly, you know, even Stephen King thought City of Churches, you know, interesting place to, you know, <laughs> yeah. to, to, to respond to. Even Salman Rushdie thought it was mm, interesting, in writer's festival. So... Um, and I, growing up in Adelaide, um, I just, I was, you know, that grew up and there was child abductions and strange things, but we all carry on and, um, and this, the, so it, but also going back into my grandparents, um, and that, that sort of very veneer of, um, you know, polite society, not saying much about the past or speaking of the past, as we know, in that for the generations going back. Um, so it's a bit like, oh, for God's sake, what is... <laughs> Yeah. Can I, I have to dig deep. I've got to get a feeling for this. So 
I, I feel hybridity of things, um, that having found objects and natural objects and authentic objects and, and, the, and the animals also, mm. how we treat and mismanage the land or overmanaged it or that, mm. that this whole build up of confabulation of things so they rub up against each other. But um, I wanted to get that um, aesthetic and so some of that sort of Australian Gothic feel um, to, um, yeah, so it's a bit of a horror. <laughs> feeling to it all. Yeah. Well, maybe we should end it with that okay. note. It's a bit of a horror. <laughs> uh, if there's any questions, um, Sue's very happy to answer them. Ah, yes, they're, they're kangaroo skulls. So, yes, um, yes, kangaroo skulls. Yes, yeah, so um, I guess that idea of a chandelier that we find in domestic situations and pubs, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and we've just noticed coming into the space that there are cobwebs growing on the chandelier, um, and Sue has decided to leave them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's living. Yeah. It's living. Yeah. There was another question. Um, could I ask the, um, the sort of the question the door knobs and the drink yeah. cabinet? Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Yes. Is that referencing the um, That's, I guess that's Mary. I, <laughs> it's just like, I guess it's the idea of a woman's plait coming out, working in the pub, and yeah, yeah. It, 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 again, it's, a bit, it, it's an illusion, but it's, it is a horse tail. Yeah, real horse tail. Um, yeah, so it, it's just, just imagine of um, sort of head in the barrel, just... <laughs> It's a bit, bit gothic, but um, there's those sort of con other con sinister connotations, but also, yeah. Um, I think of a kind of womb and thinking about the yeah. shape of the barrel and mm. the fact that she had seven children and there are seven doorknobs. Um, I think if the whole shape is quite female. Oh, yeah, thank you. That's thank right. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we... Oh, we've got one more question. Um, it was sort of sensationalised. Um, we would find it very polit politically incorrect now. Um, um, you, you could read, there's some books now, anthologies that are reviving those. Um, is it Ken Gelder? If you look him up, they're reviving colonial sort of literature from that era. Um, it sort of connects to the American West literature with that sort of wild frontier. So it's very much the idea of frontier, frontier conflict. Um, yeah, so it almost becomes theatrical in its language and exaggeration. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Okay, perhaps you can join me in thanking Sue.